The sometimes singer Rihanna once said, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but chains and whips excite me. Not my cup of tea. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Isn't it interesting, though, how we react to talk of sexual kinks and fetishes? They're an integral part of the human erotic experience. And they have been part of our culture for far longer than you might imagine. I just learnt today that there are dildos dating to at least 28,000 years ago. Fascinating. Esme Louise James is a sex historian, and she's been exploring this for some years now. Esme, welcome. Hi, how are you? Great. Really, really interesting to have you on the show today. I think a lot of us are going to learn something. So your new book is called Kinky History, as is your online series. Very popular. And I think we should talk about the definition of kink, because I imagine Mm -hmm. it's been used in lots of different ways over time. What do people mean when they talk about it now? When we talk about kink now, we're generally talking about a sexual behaviour that lies slightly out of the norm um, and how we define it. Um, It can also be um, kind of any play with a partner or anything that includes various behaviours, items. Uh, It's not necessarily needed for enjoyment, but it's generally the preference. And we're not talking about illegal activities. No, We're talking about things that people think are a bit weird and different. Yeah, absolutely. How would we uh, differentiate fetishes? Are they a different category? Fetishes are different and there's a lot of overlap between them. It's kind of like a lovely Venn diagram. Fetishes are something that are necessary for um, enjoyment in any sense. Um, So fetishes were not only needed for arousal, but they are generally sometimes an object so they can be outside of the human body something like a pair of tights or a pair of shoes can cause enjoyment and arousal rather than just an actual person wearing them yeah okay good good we've got our definitions we got it down (laughs) it's interesting though isn't it because i mean that's a very matter of fact clear uh sensible way to describe it but in the past people might have used words like perversion mightn't they well it's very interesting when we actually define kinks and fetishes for the first time this happens around the time of uh sigmund freud um, and richard von kaff ebbing and why they decided to define these things was in order to define perversion They weren't trying to do this for a kind of sexually empowered movement. They were trying to do it to distinguish what's normal and what isn't normal so that they could diagnose and heal the non-normal. So we've really, you know, transitioned over time from that that, that initial place of where labelling was to something that's now used as an empowered sense. It's also fascinating, isn't it, that when we talk about normal, we have the idea that that's the largest number and the not normal is the smallest. What proportion of people engage in kink? Well, this was one of the most interesting facts that we came in uh, in the book. So I worked on the book. I'm a sex historian by trade and my mum is a statistician. And as part of the book, she ran contemporary numbers and did a lot of recent research. And one of the most incredible studies that's included in our book found that 50% of our population have desires that would be classified as kinky. Um, And this was done a few years ago. And so not only would you say that one in two people are kinky, but one in two people were happy to say so. So the actual number is likely to be so much larger than that. And I guess when we talk about desires, that's quite different from actually uh, engaging in behaviours, isn't it? Absolutely. So is kink a state of mind as much as a state of what you do for play? Absolutely. And so a lot of kink can also just be your imagination. You don't even need to perform um, any of these things that maybe get you going, but thinking about it and having that kind of imagination play, whether that's with yourself 
yourself or with someone else can be incredibly fulfilling. And so when we put together kinky history, we're looking to the fact that if these behaviours are so prevalent today, we can trace these stories all the way back through history. And in doing so, hopefully people won't feel so freaky. Well, I was just thinking about how in the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, things mm. have changed so radically that we're having this conversation today. Absolutely. You know, about dildos, we're going to talk about BDSM, we're going to talk <laughs> about a bunch of stuff that people would have flushed with shame and left the room if we're raised, you know, a few mm-hmm. decades ago. And that's, you know, great for some people and it's going to be quite confronting for others. Mm. Tell us about your introduction to the world of kink, Esme, because that sounds like you were quite young, you're in your 20s. Yes. Um, <laughs> and it would have been really challenging for some people to go through that. Um, I think it was very interesting. So I initially started writing as part of my university. I was working on a lot of magazines and journals at the time. And someone had reached out to me to see if I was happy to write an article on the history of the dildo because no one else wanted to touch this project. And I jumped at the opportunity. I love finding out weird facts from history. And as soon as I did, I found myself in this kind of sink or swim environment in academia. I could either be the person who wrote that scandalous article and we will never talk about it again. Or I could be the person who committed and was fully confident in the fact that I wrote that article and I was very proud of it. And I am forever grateful that I made that decision because it ended up taking me down this incredible road that we're here you know, four years later and um, researching sex history for a living. My entire academic career in- changed. Um, well, and also you had this moment where you were talking with a friend and you were like, I guess if I'm going to be researching this, I probably need to go and see it in person. person. <laughs> what was it like that first time at the club? Because I want to I want to tell, talk about a dynamic that happened. You came into the yes. club, you had your friend uh, on a chain and collar and you both dressed up. You're like, let's get into the mood. And a middle-aged guy came up and said, is your slave for sale? Yes. And a lot of people might worry about that dynamic, an Mm -hmm. older man wanting to dominate a younger woman. Mm -hmm. What was your experience in the club? What I think one of the biggest misconceptions about kink in the modern age is that these clubs and environments that you go to are some of the most consensual and ethical environments you could ever go into. And my ethos has kind of been through this education that we should actually be taking the rules of these communities and implementing them into all of our relationships and sex life. So when you go into these clubs, you will immediately be told um, a list of rules that you must follow. One of the most important being that you cannot um, approach or talk to anyone unless you have a verbal yes. So I have described this as one of the best girls nights you can ever do because going into some of these clubs that um, I've gone to do my little research uh, papers, my girlfriends come with me. They are dancing to ABBA and Spice Girls. They are looking absolutely fire and no one can come and touch you or ruin your night without verbal consent. And that is just so important. And I think the fact that we've had these very underground communities that are practicing these this open discussions when it comes to desires and relationships, there's so much we can learn from that. I was really fascinated reading Esme Louise James's book, Kinky History, because uh, in that first, that first visit to the, uh, the club, uh, your friend discovered some things about her own desires that made her more confident. And, you know, you both engaged in the, a whipping session that was really, really interesting. But tell us also about um, the moment where you saw a display between an experienced submissive and a dominant. Mm-hmm. What was going on between them? What was the tone of that interaction? It was very interesting to see um, things that I've studied 
playing out in real life. And in this scene that I watched, that's generally what we call it, um, there was um, a dominant, um, a man, who was uh, whipping his submissive and she was on her knees in just complete euphoria and happiness and watching the interplay between them, this kind of, again, communication, constantly checking in um, to make sure that it was still enjoyment for all parties. But this sense of empowerment through submission is something that's really, really interesting. And when we go back from through history, you can kind of see this sense of euphoria through worship. Um, and that's seeing that play out in real life was so powerful. And by the end, they both just kind of broke out crying and hugged one another because they were so happy. Um, and there's some really interesting studies into this state that it puts you in. It's a state of transcendence, basically through a combination of pain and pleasure. And having someone there that you trust to be able to do that play with, that's incredible. I guess, do people also confuse it with, you know, the mechanics of sex? It sounds mm-hmm. like this club was not about, you know, necessarily and exclusively people just getting off and having yeah. orgasms. They actually kick people out for coming to these clubs uh, with the intention of having sex. That is something that is absolutely no go. Um, as I say, you know, the definition of kink is something outside of that normal vanilla sexual behaviour. And so uh, if that is your intention to go in and it's very easy to spot those people, they will remove them. Uh, this is meant to be a safe space for people to enjoy these kind of non-normative acts of play, uh, experiencing sexual pleasure through submission and, and not necessarily sexual gratification. We're speaking with Esme Louise James, and I love this line in the book, Esme, when you're talking about the arbitrariness of why Mm -hmm. some things are called kink and some aren't. Why did we decide that licking someone's genitals is fine, but toes is a (laughs) no-go? Does that change over time? I mean, are there trends in what people see as normal and not normal sexual behaviour? Absolutely. Uh, This has been, I think, for me, the most enjoyable part of the book was tracing sexual behaviours and when certain positions and certain acts come into vogue, as they say. Tell me more about that. I will. (laughs) Well, one of the lines that I really wanted to uh, start the book with, uh, which was finally vetoed, but it was just... um, uh Anal is going out of fashion and rimming is in, which came from a Melbourne study. Um, And it was about the fact that more people are practicing rimming, which is, you know, licking of the back door. And uh, one of the things that we talk about here is that that behavior is starting to be practiced more and more in Melbourne and in Australia. And we can see that that was connected to the rise of shows like Sex Education and um, Euphoria. but then you go back through history and we have had a practice of rimming all throughout the times. One of my favourite facts is that back in the medieval age, they believed that witches would kiss the ass of the devil upon meeting him. Uh, this was called the kiss of shame. And because of this reason, you could actually be charged with heresy um, on claims that you had engaged in rimming. And this famously happened on with the Knights of Templar on Friday the 13th. Amongst many of the charges that saw them... Um, well, burned at stake for heresy, was engaging in what we would now call rimming. And, you know, that it tells us so much. It doesn't just tell us that that was an act that was known, but it was so well known that it took on social significance. It's fascinating how much uh, literary reference is in your <laughs> book, Kinky History. It's really, really interesting. And I guess, you know, there, there's a, a rich seam of uh, literary erotica from certain centuries. But Absolutely. But you've uncovered a lot going back thousands of years. Tell us a little bit about uh, James Joyce's letters and why they make oh. the James Joyce scholars squirm a little bit. 
James Joyce letters, they are truly beautiful. Um, James Joyce writes a series of letters to his wife, Nora, in a period of time that they are apart. And it would have started from a letter from Nora. and We don't have it. And there's, I think, a good reason why uh, the family may not want to come forward with them now. But whatever she says sets James Joyce up and he starts writing letters to his sweet, dirty, little, fudging, farting bird. And they go... You had an ass full of farts that night, darling, and I fudged them right out of you. Big fat fellows, long windy ones, quick little merry cracks, and a lot of tiny little naughty farties ending in one long gush from your hole. And they are they are pure poetry. And he writes that there is at least 20 of these letters. And James Joyce scholars will likely squirm at them because it makes what is a great man and a great author seem ridiculous. However, what I kind of want readers of Kinky History to see is that it can actually be the flip side of that in telling these kinky proclivities of these famous figures, we start to see them as human again. We start to see that this aspect of kind of dirty, dirty, freakish sexuality is always a part of people, even the greatest people in history. And if James Joyce can write those letters and still go on to write the modernist Bible, then there's nothing stopping us. Yeah, well, and F. Scott Fitzgerald had a thing for feet. The book is full of these fascinating little tidbits. I guess, you know, we were talking before about how much things have changed and mm-hmm. how James um, generally more relaxed things are. But kink shaming is one of those things that that persists, doesn't it? Why do you think that is? And when when might it end? I think it's one of those, I guess, occurrences in history that goes around in circles. Um, We're seeing a time now where this idea of kink shaming is starting to lessen. And again, I look to shows like Sex Education and this dominance of the conversation in the media. Um, But then again, you know, you go back 250 years uh, into Europe and there was times where kink shaming was definitely not a thing uh, because practices like strangulation and flagellation were so prevalent in Europe that they had to be banned in certain places with rules in place because people were getting too hurt um, practicing flagellation at home. Maybe their consent practices were not quite as evolved as they (laughs) have now. But there's this idea of like um, a kind of a a circular movement through history of these times of progression and conservatism. And I think we're seeing a time for the first time ever that because of access to education and access to open conversation, that we can probably explore these parts of who we are but with the information to go with them to tell us how to do it ethically and safely. And access to social media. I mean, your series online is very, very popular. It's called Kinky History Like the Book Is. And you can see why people might go, I just want to not go into a bookshop maybe and pick (laughs) up. I want to look something privately on my computer at home and see how I feel about this. How useful has the whole Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon been in, you know, (laughs) (laughs) making kink a bit more mainstream? Fifty Shades of Grey is a very interesting one. I I do mention in my book uh, that in the week that every single movie came out, as well as when the books caught on, uh, emergency rooms across the world in the UK, uh, America and Australia see a 50% increase in injuries by sex toys and sex play. A massive increase. And I think that speaks to the fact that Fifty Shades of Grey... um, from the kink community perspective, was very, very poorly done. It doesn't teach safe play. It doesn't teach communication in any single way. Um, And it very much cherry picks 
the parts of kink that might seem sexy and leaves out the stuff that's actually sexy, like open communication and consent. Um, But I think it speaks to a really interesting phenomenon. When this took off, people wanted to watch it. They wanted to talk about it. They wanted it almost like touched something inside of everyone that they'd been desperate to talk about. And what I thought was fabulous was then people jumped on the train and were like, okay, well, if you're ready to talk about it, let's talk about these all the other things that come with it, Um, which I think is where the intersection in our chapter of the book about Fifty Shades of Grey comes in, how this dynamic that was explored in the book that captured so many hearts and, you know, I've enjoyed it over a bottle of wine and chocolate many, many a time, but how we can then expand the discussion to see how that can actually be done safely. Yeah, and it speaks to the idea that maybe getting joining a community might mm-hmm. be a better and safer entree than, yeah, just trying it at home. Just trying kids. it at home and ending up in the emergency room. Please don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. The ABC does not endorse that approach. No. <laughs> Esme, it's been fascinating chatting with you today. Thanks so much for coming in on Life Matters. Thank you so much for coming in for this uh, lovely spicy radio segment. It is a pleasure. Esme Louise James is a sex historian, PhD. Her book's called Kinky History, and you can find the Kinky History series online as well. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.